Seema Malhotra, member of the Brexit Select Committee, member of Parliament for Feltham and Heston. Seema, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Hot foot from the second day of the Brexit bill reading in the Commons. You put down some amendments. What did you put down and why? I'm tabling amendments today, which I announced in my speech as well, to secure, in my view, three things. The first is that we need to have a timely way in which the government brings its proposals to the House of Commons so that we can meaningfully comment before we have a vote at the end of the process. I secondly believe very strongly that we need to reform the freedom of movement rules and allow the option of keeping our uh, membership of the single market. Thirdly, I believe that as part of that, we need to make sure we secure a strong future for our young people. And I'm calling for an exemption for young people so that they can, uh, of any arrangements in the future, to make sure that they can maintain their rights, rights to work, to study and, and to move. And so they're not disadvantaged compared to their European counterparts. Finally, I also made the point Point, and I'll be tabling an amendment for this as well, which is I believe we need a national convention. Parliament is having a way in which it's involved in the process now as a result of the Supreme Court judgment. But Gina well, Miller. And, and certainly massively supporting and thanking Gina Miller for her work in this. But in addition, we should make sure that people continue to be involved in this debate. It shouldn't just be the case they had the referendum and that's it. I think we need a national convention that brings together mayors, elected local government representatives, civil society, unions, universities, businesses, involvement regions and or administrations and nations, and that we have a collective conversation as we take this country's debate forward. Now, you are going to vote for the Brexit bill? I am going to, today, to support the second reading. That isn't a carte blanche. That isn't saying that the support is guaranteed for any stage in the future. This is about saying we recognise that this was the decision of the British people. My constituency voted marginally to leave. But I do believe that there's a huge responsibility now that you can't take anybody's vote for granted and that we need to have a meaningful way in which we're engaged in the debate going forward. The Evening Standard tonight is saying that London MPs are going to vote against the bill. You've had front bench resignations. Rupe Huck has also said to the Standard that she will vote against the bill. Are your amendments going to appease those Remainers in your constituency? We've still got three days of debate to go on committee and I think we'll all reserve judgment on where we go on the third reading and on the vote at the end. But I think what's important is that we say this is the way the country voted. This is, this is certainly my view. I'm going to find it really difficult to walk through the voting lobby tonight. I, but I do believe that if we're to abide by the result of the referendum, this is only the start of the process and that we've got a long way to go to make sure that we get the right outcome for Britain. A lot of what we do going forward depends on how the government takes forward the negotiations and how they take forward the engagement with Parliament and the country. Now, if we just read one of your amendments, it says, on which royal assent is given to this Act and retaining the ability to participate in EU programmes designed to provide opportunity to young people, including programmes to facilitate studying in other EU member states. Would that new clause, as part of the Brexit bill, would it really appease Remainers? Would it really help alleviate the consequences of Brexit? You called in your speech also for evidence-based policy on Brexiting. How do we know that your clauses are going to have any impact? I can't 
for a minute say that this is going to reverse the decision and that's not what it's about. This is about saying if we're to move forward in a way that doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, what could we do? What could we keep that means that we go with the spirit of the referendum result, but we understand also what was good and what we could retain about our relationship with the European Union. I specifically am concerned about young people for this reason, that if we look at the kind of language and dialogue that we've got in our politics right now, we need to do something that means that for our young people, they've got the best chance of building relationships with young people across Europe as well, that they're not disadvantaged, that they are, in a sense, the future. We have a stake in their future and they should not be either socially or economically disadvantaged in terms of their development compared to their European counterparts. Do you expect to see your three amendments become law? Will you get Remainers from the Tory bench, people who may have been Remainers on the Labour bench but are with a heavy heart voting for this second reading of the Brexit bill. How much momentum can you reasonably expect to build up? I think that remains to be seen for there are many, many amendments put down. And I, I made this point as well that the government had a one clause bill and it was designed to be difficult to amend. But the idea that we might be silenced as members of parliament in terms of what we see as vital for the government's priorities, that's something that's been put to bed by the number of amendments that have gone in. I want to make sure that we have a very strong debate. I want the government's response to be on the record. I want young people to know their voices are still being heard. I want us to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and I want us to come out with a conclusion from the end of the next two years that does not disadvantage Britain any more than we will be disadvantaged from leaving the European Union. There's been a lot of speeches including from Ken Clark on the other side but from your side too about voting with your conscience. Will voting for the Brexit bill tonight be voting with your conscience even given that you've put down amendments? Voting for the bill for the second reading tonight, and it's the second reading, is, in my view, in line with respecting the result of the referendum and recognising that the majority in my constituency, even though it was marginal, voted to leave. What I do believe is the case is that no vote can be taken for granted. I'm not committing to how I'm voting on any vote in the future, and I'm not committing at all to how I would be voting on the final deal. The government's got a long way to build trust, to build relationships, in the protest going forward and to make sure we get the right outcome for Britain. And what would you say to front benchers like Chris Bryant or previous front benchers like Chris Bryant who said no, no, no to voting with this bill? In my view, I don't think this should have been a three-line whip. And the reason for me is that we had a choice about how we campaigned in the referendum. I don't believe that we should tie anybody to anything other than what they believe is the right vote for them and the right vote for their constituency. So you're voting for the Brexit bill, but it's not down and dusted yet by a long way. You've got these three amendments. I'll be probably having a few more amendments as well by the time we finish. But this is just the start of the process. And I think that's what's important. The government mustn't take any votes for granted. They, I think there's got to be a sea change in how we engage on this in terms of transparency, in terms of evidence base, and in terms of making sure that we get an outcome that does not make us any poorer than we're likely to be as a result of the changes we're about to see coming to our country. And a white paper with 12 
points from Theresa May's speech published tomorrow. A white paper published tomorrow kicking and screaming, a white paper published after we called for it, after the select committee recommended it, the select committee that I'm on, after other people have said we need far more than a speech to be able to have a conversation about the direction of Britain's trade relationships and other parts of our engagement with the European Union. So I think it is a government called again kicking and screaming to engage Parliament in the process. It's right that we have the white paper tomorrow, it's wrong that it took so long. Is it right procedurally that the white paper comes after you've had the vote on the second reading? It's, I think it's ridiculous that it's taken so long and I think it is really not showing, again, respect for Parliament. If we're to have a proper debate and dialogue, then I do think that we have to have a far more meaningful way and a way in which the government now seeks to build trust. I think trust is pretty low right now. If the government tried and wanted to do this, it took Gina Miller and the Supreme Court to have a vote in Parliament at all. It's taken the Select Committee and other campaigning to make sure we get a white paper. I think we need to now have a government that says we've got to really be responsive, far more responsive and accountable to Parliament and to the people. And you, Seema Maholtra, through your amendments and through your call for a convention, it sounds very central planning like Wilson's government of the, the 1970s where you had neddies and little neddies. You're really saying we need an industrial strategy as well as we need evidence-based policy. I am certainly saying that and also what I'm saying is that this isn't a case now of government knows best. This is a case of government's going to get the right answer with the engagement of the people and to close the doors to conversation is I believe going to operate against our interests and not inform the Prime Minister as she needs to be informed as she goes forward into those negotiations. So your convention is a two-way process? Absolutely, the convention is about stimulating and engaging in proper evidence-based conversation and I think it's a vital part of keeping the British people informed and on side as we go forward. Seema Maholtra, thank you very much indeed for talking to Women's Parliamentary Radio here today, hot foot after your speech on the second reading of the Brexit debate in Parliament. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Ailey Whiteford, I'm the MP for Banff and Buchan. Ailey, thank you very much indeed for talking to Women's Parliamentary Radio again. It's the end of January, the last day, and we've had the reading of the government's Brexit bill, European Union notification of withdrawal, EU bill, second reading today. The SNP, your party, have put down amendments. What amendments are there? Well, we've put down a reasoned amendment, which actually has been backed by MPs from other parties in the House of Commons as well. And essentially, at the heart of our reasoned amendment is that the government hasn't brought forward any white paper for us to, to debate. So essentially, if we were to pass the motion today, we'd be offering them a blank cheque. We still don't know what triggering Article 50 will mean. And until we do, as MPs, we can't scrutinise that. So, you know, that's a fundamental objection. The other, I think, really important objection that we have to it is that there's not been sufficient scrutiny by the devolved administrations. That's not just in Scotland, it's also with the democratically elected leaders in Wales and Northern Ireland. It's another big shortcoming that we've not got today. But I think, above all, you know, we just don't know what the consequences are going to be for ordinary people. You know, before the Brexit debate, we were made all kinds of rash promises that there would be more money for public services. But I think most opinion now recognises that there won't be, that actually it could be extremely difficult for our economy to be as successful as it currently is under hard Brexit scenario. So, you know, I think until we have some answers around these questions, it's very difficult for anyone who 
is looking after the direct interests of the people who live and work in their constituencies, that, to give the government that blank cheque. To change tack slightly, congratulations, your private member's bill on the so-called Istanbul Convention on Domestic Violence and Prevention of Violence Against Women. It's coming back to the House tomorrow. You're dealing in the committee stage. Will that be impacted at all by Brexit? It's a Council of Europe Convention, which is not actually anything to do with the European Union as such. The Council of Europe existed before the European Union and may exist after it, for all I know. The Convention itself, I don't think, will be affected here or there by Brexit as such, because it's been drafted in such a way, it's a piece of international law that any country could sign up to. Yeah, in 42 any members. Of the world. It's not really anything to do with the EU. I think where services for women could be affected, the two main threats to those would be a rolling back of rights-based legislation in the UK and or cuts to public services. You know, if our economy is slowing down as a consequence of Brexit, then of course that has a knock-on impact on the services available to all citizens, but women would be disproportionately affected by that in terms of those who are fleeing domestic violence. So there's a kind of indirect link, but there's no direct link. Obviously, the bill passed at second reading, so it now goes to committee stage tomorrow, where it will be scrutinised line by line. After that, it will come back to the House of Commons for its report stage and third reading, I hope, if it gets beyond its committee stage. And you had the government supporting that? The government have been supporting it. You know, the government have always said they support the Istanbul Convention. It, it has just got very stuck for the last four and a half years and hasn't made any progress. And I think I've said right from the start that part of the objective of my bill was to get over that inertia and to keep that process going, getting it back on track. That's still my objective. The government clearly has some steps to take before it feels it can ratify the bill. So we'll be scrutinising that tomorrow in committee and I hope we'll be able to progress it beyond the committee stage into report stage and third reading in the House of Commons again. Now your spokesperson in this Brexit bill debate actually held up a white paper. It had I think over 670 pages. He said this is what a real white paper looks like yet in the same debate Ian Duncan Smith was going to be quite happy with a white paper that's coming out on Thursday. The government said it will publish which has 12 points from Theresa May's recent speech on Brexit. A big divide between you the government and the opposition parties. I think that's right. And, you know, I listened to Stephen Gethin's speech. I think the point he was making was that we owe it to the people, but also the government owes it to Parliament to let us know what we're voting for. And in the absence of a white paper or a kind of retrospective white paper, we're being asked to give the government this blank cheque for something that certainly in Scotland people overwhelmingly voted against. There was a very strong 62% of people in Scotland voted Remain. You know, I think we need to take seriously the reasons why people might have voted Leave, but many of them had been told that our position in the single market was not up for discussion, that of course we would be in the single market, that we would be like Norway or Iceland. We would still be part of the European economic area, even if we weren't member states. And I think these dis distinctions have got lost in a sort of mission creep over the Brexit debate, so that now we're looking at a kind of cliff edge with consequences that we can't accurately predict, but which most informed commentators are suggesting will result in the region of 80,000 job losses in Scotland and see incomes across the piece, but for working people reduced by around £2,000 a year. We can debate the detail of 
those projections, however, they're sufficiently serious that we shouldn't be making this rash leap off the edge at this stage. We should be looking at finding compromise. We should be doing what the Scottish government's doing, which is proposing constructive alternatives and constructive ways forward. Nicholas Sturgeon said 50 amendments. Yeah, I think we are tabling. I mean, we've tabled the big reasoned amendment, which is the important thing, but absolutely need to put down amendments because we shouldn't be doing this until we know what the implications are going to be for our universities, for our core industries, things like our food and drink exports, which are worth so much to the Scottish economy and are far more important to Scotland's economy than they are to the UK economy as a whole. Support literally thousands of jobs in my own constituency. Take fish processing, for example. We're exporting around nearly half a billion pounds worth of fish to the EU every year. It's a massive proportion of our fish exports. And yet we don't know what the arrangements will be. I think it's almost likely that we'll face extra tariffs. You know, what non-tariff barriers will we face? What's the cost of those? At the moment, if you're importing to the EU from outside the EU, you need a health certificate, and the cost of that is £300 per consignment. Now, that will put small businesses in my constituency who export to the EU out of business. And we need to know... For example, if there's going to be a levy on EU migrant workers or if they're going to be told they have to have private health insurance. This is absolutely critical to our economy. And while we don't have any of that information on the table, how on earth can we write a blank cheque? The SNP, your 54 MPs, are likely to be the only party that in its entirety votes against this second reading of the Brexit bill. The Lib Dems are opposed to it too. But aren't you together as parties toothless in that your opposition is now falling on deaf ears because the Labour Party have got a three-line whip to vote with the bill and with the government? I would be very, very surprised if Labour's able to impose a three-line whip today. I think many Labour MPs have already signalled that it's not in the interest of their constituents to do that. I think over the last few months, Labour's ability to whip its MPs has been quite weak. So I expect today you'll see a number of Labour MPs voting against their party's professed position. I think you will see the smaller parties in the House of Commons voting with the SNP on this, and I think you'll see a fairly unanimous perspective from at least some of them. Now, the the recent Supreme Court ruling has said that there's no need for the government to consult with the devolved powers, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. How will you continue your negotiations with the government about Brexit? Let's assume this bill gets through because it's likely to. What's going to happen to lobby for your constituents, for your economic interests, as you've been saying? Because some people have said, well, it would be a race to the bottom in terms of our economy. There's arguments that although we voted for Brexit, people didn't vote to make themselves worse off. There's a very grey line between all of this, isn't there? I think that's right. And I think the High Court ruling made clear that some of the promises made to the Scottish Government and the other devolved administrations are not worth the paper they're printed on and that need for legislative consent is is actually a fairly toothless tiger when push comes to shove. The government has said that it will consider the proposals put forward by the Scottish government. Incidentally, far more substantial proposals than anything that the UK government has put into the public domain. The Scottish government, much more recently, just in the last few weeks, has published paper, a discussion paper for the UK government on Scotland's place in Europe. And it basically puts forward suggestions for how the UK government 
could meet the aspirations of people in Scotland and in other parts of the UK that hadn't voted to leave the EU and whose interests are in maintaining at least, at the very least, a strong economic and trading relationship with our EU partners. So the Scottish government put forward a case of how the UK could leave the EU and respect the decision there. It's very much a compromise proposal, but leave the EU and stay within the single market. That was an argument, actually, that leading Brexiteers were making during the campaign. Boris Johnson is on the record throughout saying that he favoured single market membership. But that's what I meant when I was talking about mission creep, that the goalposts seem to have shifted towards a kind of far more hardline UKIP view that we should just cut all ties and live in splendid isolation. And I don't think that's desirable. I don't think it's what even people who voted leave thought they were voting for. So the Scottish government would like to see the UK negotiate a single market continuation, even as it leaves the EU and seek to do that. But we also put forward proposals that if the UK was determined to leave the single market, there should be mechanisms whereby Scotland could negotiate a deal that kept us within the single market. Now, we already have that in the EU with regard to, for example, Denmark and the Faroe Islands, where Denmark is full member state of the EU, but the Faroe Islands are not. The Faroe Islands are currently actually trying to negotiate their own access to the single market because they, I think probably because of their fishing industry, they understand that they're at a competitive disadvantage because they're not part of the single market and that's very important to their local economy. The Faroes are technically part of Denmark. They have a devolved relationship with Denmark but are kind of self-governing part of, well, I, I don't know what the correct term they would prefer to use is, but so they already have this special arrangement with the EU. It is the possible. EU. It is possible. Anything's possible. Look at the relationship between, for example, Switzerland and Liechtenstein, whereby Liechtenstein is part of the free trade area, EFTA, whereas Switzerland is not, and yet they have completely open border between the two and trade agreements. They have a customs union between Liechtenstein and Switzerland. These things are possible, and the EU has been in the past very pragmatic and very open to these kinds of arrangement. And clearly it would be in Scotland's interest to be part of the single market, even if we're outside the EU. Pushing that compromise, I think, is an important strategic opportunity at the, at the current time for us. And Theresa May... Theresa May needs to take that seriously. Yeah, but Theresa May has been talking to the devolved assemblies. You've got something called the Joint Ministerial Committee where the devolved parliaments, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, do talk on behalf of each other to the government. But do you think it's realistic that, that we have what would end up would be a hodgepodge Brexit? Scotland gets something, the other devolved powers perhaps get something else and the UK goes it alone for a complete break. I mean, is that feasible? I think part of the problem, you know, and I've not been part of those talks, but it, from what I gather from reading and listening to what people have said coming out of them is that the government, the UK government's been doing an awful lot of talking at the administrations, but perhaps less listening. It's really important that these serious proposals are given the due seriousness that they demand. And that we all work to find a compromise that meets the democratic aspirations of people in all parts of these islands and responds to the fact that 62% of Scottish voters voted against Brexit. Is it right that these people's democratic aspirations are subsumed to the greater need of people in England who voted to leave. That's not a stable settlement for the UK. I think Nicola Sturgeon is working extremely hard to try to find a compromise and try to find a solution that works for all parts of these islands, not just 
one part or one constituency of these islands. So it may be possible to have something which is a bit more like a patchwork quilt than one model of Brexit for the whole of the UK. We'll see if that happens, but it's very likely the Parliament will vote through the second reading of the Brexit bill. It will go to the Lords, it will come back, and despite the fact that the all 54 SNP MPs will oppose it and give speeches opposing it and put down amendments, we will Brexit by the 31st of March. Ian Duncan Smith said the bill was nothing more than to trigger Brexit. Do you accept that, that that the bill and the white paper aren't about the detail and the detail will eventually come back to the Commons, as the the Prime Minister has promised? I don't accept that because I think what it exposes is actually the desperate weakness of the government's position. Triggering Article 50 is starting a stopwatch. There is a time limit on this. It means negotiations have to be concluded within a two-year period. And the problem is that... If the EU decides that it wants to play hardball with the UK, it can drag out and make those negotiations very difficult so that the UK does a deal in desperation towards the end of that two-year period. That's a very real risk, and I think it's been very clear from what Theresa May said in her speech a couple of weeks ago that the UK's negotiating position is extremely weak and that they don't have as much leverage as they're trying to pretend that they have. I thought what former Chancellor Ken Clark from the Tory benches said in the debate today was very interesting when he drew the analogy to Alice in Wonderland, which we're all familiar with the image of Alice going down the rabbit hole into a kind of parallel universe. It's a very famous, well-loved children's book, but when a former Chancellor of the Exchequer is comparing the current thinking within his own party to people having gone down the rabbit hole and living in delusional fantasy world, I do think there are very, very serious questions to be asked. That's where I think my caution comes from, because I don't think people are asking seriously what the outcome of this will be. It's almost like a child jumping into the swimming pool for the first time at the deep end, and you don't know what it's going to be like, but you just have to sort of hold your nose and close your eyes and take the plunge. And that's fine when you're learning to swim, but it's not fine when you're trying to do international negotiations on important issues that have real consequence for people's livelihoods and jobs. Well, Ken Clark did seem for the Tory party to be the sole Remainer speaking. He got a standing ovation from the other side of the House, including from your SMPs. And he also talked about voting with your conscience, that you do your duty by your constituents if you vote with your conscience. Are you surprised by Labour's three-line whip to vote for Brexit? I am surprised because, and I'll tell you why I'm most surprised. I'm most surprised because the history of the Labour movement has been about securing the rights of working people in the workplace so that people have are healthy and safe in the workplace, which they haven't always been, still aren't in some occupations. It's been about securing the rights of people to live their lives in a decent way, even if they're in very low-paid jobs. It's been about securing these rights, and a lot of these rights are now codified through European legislation. And one of the fears that I have about Brexit is that we're going to see an erosion of workplace rights, for example. Things like maternity leave that women now in this country take for granted. We didn't always have that. We didn't always have the right to equal pay. We didn't always have the right to have equality in the workplace regardless of our skin colour, regardless of our religious background, regardless of our disability. All these kind of protected characteristics that now stop blatant discrimination that used to be very commonplace. 
And there was a hint in Theresa May's speech at, at the, the other week that she sees one of the points of leverage that she has is that the UK can gain a competitive advantage by taking away some of these rights from people. And I find it just quite staggering that the Labour Party would be so cavalier about these things that they, along with other people, but that they were so instrumental in securing and in bringing about. That's the biggest reason why I'm surprised at the line they've taken, but I won't be at all surprised if we see a lot of Labour MPs and indeed one or two Tories opposing the government and the lobbies tonight. And if the second reading, if the Brexit, two-line Brexit bill gets through and that the devolved assemblies don't get any amendments and the Joint Ministerial Committee isn't able to squeeze out of the government what it would wish. Do you think there'll be a second referendum on independence in Scotland? I think Nicola Sturgeon's made it very clear that that's an option that will have to be considered very seriously. I think public opinion in Scotland, from what I can see of it, is very worried about Brexit because so many of our jobs depend on international trade, so many of our jobs. And the areas of our economy that are growing fastest are very interconnected with the EU, whether that's in our universities, in our medical research, in life sciences, whether it's in food and drink exports. That's something that's very important to my part of the world. Our biggest growth areas are in that huge EU market, and we don't want to lose it. Of course, we want to continue to trade with the rest of the UK, but we don't want to cut ourselves off from those important growth markets, because that's where our future prosperity will come from and where our current standard of living finds its protection it would just be a daft thing to do and need to fight for what's best for the people of Scotland. And just finally hand on heart to take up Ken Clark's rallying call to MPs to vote with their conscience. Is there something that comes to mind? You mentioned Alice in Wonderland, he mentioned Burke Um, We've had some moving addresses. As I said, he got a standing ovation from your side, the SNP. But how would you put your plea to perhaps wavering MPs who are going to vote for the second reading of the Brexit bill and vote with the government? Brexit has been a very divisive issue in that people have strong opinions on it. But I think as MPs, sometimes we're called to make the harder choices, not the easy choices. It's very easy to engage in dog whistle issues. It's very easy to simplify complex debates, but as people in public life, sometimes we need to make hard choices and act with integrity, even if they don't make us popular. So I would say to Labour MPs to act in the interests of their constituents as they determine them to be, and not for what they think is the easy option. Even if their constituents voted to Brexit? Again, people thought they were voting for something different with Brexit. I mean, some of the things that people were told that they would get in Scotland, they were told that there would be 1.5 billion more to spend on public services in Scotland. Now, we know that that was just a falsehood. We were told there'd be 20,000 new jobs. That was just a falsehood. And we were told there'd be more cash for Scottish higher education. Instead, what we're seeing is our universities having to step back and deprioritise research projects that are organised on an EU-wide basis. It's clear that there's not going to be some huge raft of new powers for the Scottish Parliament on fishing or agriculture or social policy. Instead, we're seeing the government trying to play down expectations of the benefits of Brexit. And most famously, we were told that there would be £350 million extra for the NHS. Actually, we now know that there will be less money to spend on the NHS and that any gains of Brexit will be absolutely wiped out by the losses of Brexit. I think in the sober, cold light of day, we have to take the 
difficult decisions and the best decisions for our constituents and look at what is reality now. What are we actually looking at down this tunnel of Brexit? Look at finding a way to meet the needs of all our citizens because by a very tiny margin, the Leave vote won across the whole UK. So that leaves almost half your citizens who voted the other way. So I, th I think it's very hard to argue against finding some kind of compromise position. And I would argue very strongly that that is, look, find a positive way to stay in the single market. By all means, recognise where we are, that we will come out of the EU, but try and find a way to preserve as many of the benefits that accrue to us as possible. Try to find that compromise. And you will be voting against the second reading of the Brexit bill? I will, because I won't give the government a blank cheque when they've not even had the courtesy, actually, to put a white paper before the House of Commons. How can we vote in favour of something that we don't even know what it is? Ailey, thank you very much indeed for talking to Women's Parliamentary Radio in your office today in Portcullis House as the second reading of the Brexit bill takes place. Thank you. Thank you. Julian Huppert, former MP for Cambridge and standing for re-election. Julian, thank you very much indeed for talking to Parliamentary Radio here today, just 24 hours after our Prime Minister, Theresa May, said in the House of Commons she'll be publishing a white paper to support their bill on Brexit following the Supreme Court decision by 8 to 3 that the government does have to put triggering Article 50 to the House of Commons. Your reaction on the white paper? I mean, this was a climb down by Theresa May, but I don't think it's going to be a hugely significant one. I mean, she will probably just put some not very interesting text into the white paper, probably just rehashing the speech she's already given, which didn't really say all that much of any great note and then be able to say to people that she's done it. So it was no great cost to her. It took the wind slightly out of Jeremy Corbyn's sails. I would like to think that it would mean that she was actually going to stop and reflect on what she's doing, but I'm not that optimistic. She's gone to see the president, the new president of the United States, Donald Trump, today following his inauguration last week. The headlines were also that he's going to bring back torture. How is your party reacting to the prime minister's what could be described as a gung-ho stance on Brexit. It's all going to be OK and we'll do all these world trade deals with whoever, whenever. So many things in that question to pick up on. And I mean, obviously on torture, it is utterly horrific. And Trump is getting a backlash quite rightly from people across the political spectrum in the US. Not only is it inhuman to do that, we actually know it doesn't even work. People don't give you useful information under torture. That's, that's just clearly horrific and shows Waterboarding that. doesn't work. Well, the evidence is that people will say whatever you want them to hear. And getting inaccurate information from torture makes it completely useless. That's why one of the reasons why people are against it, as well as the fact that do we think we are decent people? What is it that we're fighting for, if not the idea that you don't just waterboard people because you don't like them? But to pick up on, on Theresa May, I mean, yes, she's desperately gung-ho because she cannot admit the weakness in her own position. And her enthusiasm for a trade deal with the US, I mean, I, I could see why she's desperate to get that deal. If we're going to reduce our trade ability with our nearest neighbours, we have to find someone else to work with. And that we've heard all these things about how we can sign a trade deal with Trump within 90 days of Brexit. And actually, I'm sure that's true. The problem is what will that deal say? You know, Donald Trump is a negotiator. He'll happily offer something very, very quick and dirty, but it will involve just accepting anything the US happens right into it. One of my big fears is that Theresa May and the country and the government will be so desperate for that trade deal, they will give way on all sorts of things. So yes, you can get a deal, but I think it'll be an atrocious deal, which will be bad for this country. 
bad for Cambridge, the constituency you once served as an MP, and now you're standing again in. Absolutely. Bad for Cambridge economically, but also, I think, bad for the values that are so strong in Cambridge. You know, the sort of things we're likely to see are, for example, Trump insisting on a massive weakening of environmental standards. You know, we know how he's not persuaded about, about the environmental issues. You know, his, his notorious claims that climate change was just invented by China as a way of weakening the US. You know, frankly, I wish that were true, but we know that it's not true. And huge other weakenings in workforce rights in many, many other areas. That's what I'd be worried about. And that will hit Cambridge, but more it will hit the sort of things that people in Cambridge care about. Women's rights. Did you march on Saturday? I was hoping to, but I was in my first board meeting as a trustee of a charity, and I didn't feel I could pop out, but I was delighted to see so many people out there. Yeah, you know, women's rights is an utterly crucial thing, and when we see people like Trump rolling back on abortion support, and you know, in really quite astonishing ways, and the fact that he is quite happy to do that surrounded by a bunch of men, you know, it is terrifying what will happen, and I can go on about how atrocious Trump is. He's pretty atrocious for anybody unless you're a rich white man. Do you think then perhaps in retrospect, Theresa May is right to sail out to be the first leader to meet with the President of the United States? It might appear to some that we're going to do trade at any cost. Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, has talked about Saudi Arabia, human rights. How are we going to be able to protect those very rights that you say you'll be campaigning on in the next general election as a prospective parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Democrats? Rights and trades, do they go together? I think it's about saying there are standards and we will insist on standards being in there. And that does apply to all of these rights we've talked about, basic human rights, environmental standards and so on and so on and so on. We just say that is an absolute requirement. My fear is because of the idiocy of Brexit, the, the sheer economic idiocy of tearing ourselves apart like that, we will find ourselves very, very vulnerable to people who don't want to play that same sort of way. So within the EU, we do have environmental standards, we do have workforce standards, we have human rights standards, and we are able to stick to them. As a block of 500 million people, we are much more able to stand up for that than we would be if break away. And your party, when it comes to the next general election, Tim Farron, your leader, has said that he will try and get another referendum on Brexit, that you're in favour of the EU. Will you really be campaigning to rejoin the European Union at the next general election? Can you preserve those values? Well, so, again, a lot of points there. Firstly, we're not campaigning for another referendum on Brexit. I mean, that's what the other side were arguing for. We had a referendum in 73, and they kept arguing ever since. What we're saying is the final deal should go to the public for them to have their first say on what will they actually get. We know there are people who voted to leave the EU because they thought the package included £350 million a week extra for the NHS. We know there are people who voted to leave the, the EU on the basis that they were promised that we would stay within the single market. Those things have not happened. I think it's right that the public get their first say on what the deal actually will look like. And yes, I will almost certainly argue then that we'd be better off inside. It's hard to imagine a deal that could possibly be better. But people should have that first chance. We are a pro-European party. We are a pro-rights party, a pro-human rights party. So we will continue to make that argument at the next general election, whenever it is. Who knows? Maybe Theresa May will have the guts to actually let the public vote and have a detailed mandate. Currently, she stood on a platform with a very clear mandate from 
the Conservatives, they would have a referendum, but they would also safeguard Britain's place within the single market. Ripping up her own mandate, she ought to go and get a better one from the British people. Do you think then, after triggering Article 50 in March, given that all the legislative programme goes through the House of Commons and the Lords and the numbers look as if it will, she won't meet much resistance when push comes to shove? Will there be a general election post the March 50? I don't think she'll have the guts and the courage to do so. I think she will continue as she is. But you're right. The sad thing is that MPs in particular are being pretty weak, frankly, pusillanimous. There are pro-Remain Conservatives who seem to be silenced by Theresa May. Labour are all over the shop. The latest news is that Jeremy Corbyn has confirmed that he will have a three-line whip on Labour MPs to vote for Article 50. It's utterly bizarre that the Labour position seems to be, we'll make some demands, but if she doesn't give way, we'll give up. It's like a very strange way of working. Lib Dems have been very clear that we will oppose Article 50 unless there are some, frankly, unlikely changes. And I think some of the other parties are with us on that. But Labour being all over the shop is hugely damaging. Their utter failure to be a sensible opposition here will cause huge problems. I'm sure that a few of them will come over to us to the right side on this. But without an opposition being strong, those Conservative MPs who could be persuaded to take their principal stance and to stand up for the interests of this country and not ploughing headlong down Article 50 and the hard Brexit that Theresa May is pushing for, without an opposition there, they'll know they're going to lose colossally. And that means there's far less incentive. If Labour was playing its part and being strong, then we'd actually have a chance of winning the vote. With Labour being so atrocious at the moment in, in a number of ways, really struggling to work out a position to hold together, that lets all of us down. In the, 25 general, in the 2015 general election, you lost your seat in Cambridge by less than 1,000 votes to the Labour MP, Daniel Seitner. You're refighting the seat. You've got two new wards, which are supposed to be Lib Dem, coming into the Cambridge constituency following boundary changes. Do you see Cambridge and your battle in Cambridge as being a bellwether seat? And we'll have to see what happens. It, it's a long way off and it's hard to make predictions. It might not be a long way well, off. <laughs> we, we, we will see. But it's certainly feeling very good. I think I've had a lot of messages from people who were very sorry that I lost the first time by, by 599 votes, not that I'm counting. I've had well over 100 people who said to me they thought I was going to win and so they thought they could safely vote Labour to send a message. Had they thought it would be close, they'd have voted for me. Um, so I'm seeing a number of people who've been long-term Labour supporters, Labour members, saying they've just had enough of the Labour Party. They've just had enough uh, of, of where they're taking things, of how weak they are, and are now joining the Lib Dems, coming to help, uh, donating, doing all sorts of things. So I think that is very, very encouraging that the feel, and I've been knocking on many, many thousands of doors already, is very positive. We'll see what happens. But 2015 was an, was an incredibly low point for the Lib Dems, a tidal wave that I swam very, very hard against and almost made it over. I think the next election will be better for us, and with Labour falling apart, and with a lot of people realising just how tight this seat's going to be. And it's a 70% pro-EU seat in the referendum. Absolutely. Over 70% of people here voted to remain. So I have been articulate and clear on... I've been a pro-European my whole life. I still live in Europe and I want to continue to live in Europe. I think that will make a difference. I mean, a number of people haven't yet realised that Daniel was one of, I think, 20 Labour MPs who voted in favour of the referendum happening. Now, I'm sure he is on the Remain side. I'd accept that. And I'm sure when he decided to gamble the country's future, he hoped to win. But nonetheless, I think it was wrong to vote to toss a coin on the future of this country. Just finally and quickly, the headline this morning of Trump 
being in favour of torture, speaking up for waterboarding, Theresa May flying out there as those words were spoken. Did that strike you as bizarre or retrograde? It doesn't entirely surprise me. Britain is in a process led by Theresa May of cutting itself apart from those countries that are nearest to us that we have the most interactions with. That makes us, as a country, more dependent on others. And that's why we've seen, time and time again, Theresa May and other Conservative cabinet ministers talking so desperately about other countries they can work with, talking up a trade deal with New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand does some fantastic chocolate. Whitaker's chocolate is marvellous. I'd love to see more of it here. There's no way trade deals with New Zealand are ever going to replace what we already have with the EU. And so that desperation to sign some of those deals, to placate the few countries that we're not running away from, is why I'm not remotely surprised that she is desperate to get into Trump's good books as much as possible. I just fear massively for what the cost of that will be. Human rights. She's been a long-time supporter of the repeal of the Human Rights Act. Yeah, I mean, it, it is terrifying. We're hearing the Conservatives at the next election will stand on a platform of repealing the Human Rights Act, meaning the court in Strasbourg would have the final say, unless we become, I think, the only country in Europe other than Belarus to pull out of the European Convention of Human Rights and not be part of it. I think it's utterly terrifying. I can see why, for governments, human rights standards are a challenge. They are there to protect people's rights, against government, among others. But it is absolutely right to keep it in place. And the rights that are listed there, things like the right to life, the right not to be tortured, the right to fair process, you know, what's not to love? A bellwether seat indeed in Cambridge. Julian Huppert, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Parliamentary Radio here today, hot foot on that announcement that there'll be a white paper on Brexit. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 